This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right. Welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast focused on all topics that sit on the intersection of finance and energy. This is your host, Hill Vaden, here today with two experts in North America and global power, Wade Schaefer and Sisho Zhao. How are both of you? Hey, Hill. You're doing well. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. Zisho? Thank you for getting us back here. Feels like the first podcast of the fall season, like the school year started again. So <laughs> we're Ready. We're all still very excited. Um, yeah, well, I'm glad. I guess both of you guys, for, for, for longtime listeners, uh, Wade has done this a couple times, uh, Zijo once, um, and so this will be the first time that, that we have you guys together. So, so we're charting new ground, um, but, but thank you guys for, for joining. So, so there's been a lot of headlines re- recently around power resilience, and you know, so, so, so today is. October 6th, that there's news about energy challenges. I think some news outlets are calling it an energy crisis in Europe, um, that there's challenges in the UK, um, that there's concerns about coal supply for power generation in India. There's concern about power generation in China. So far, that the US has escaped a lot of these negative headlines, at least um, over the past couple of weeks. And so I wanted to talk about that and really get into kind of power in the U.S. Um, on a longer term. And I know both of you guys are contributing to a big study uh, on this that I'd like to talk to, to, to both of y'all about on, at the end before we get into some of the, the longer term implications. Wade, given all the headlines uh, around gas prices, around power resilience, what should we be looking for in the U.S. heading into, into winter over the next few months? So gas prices in the U.S. are edging up too. I mean, nowhere, yeah. nowhere near the degree that we're seeing in Europe. Um, just the the great pain there around um, really tight, really really tight gas supplies. Thankfully, in the U.S., we're not in quite the same situation. For one thing, you know we enjoy a very large domestic production base for natural gas and a lot of storage. So, but with that said, I mean you know our latest our latest look at it, you know we see storage edging down below historical levels. Certainly not alarmingly so yet. But storage is edging down, you know, on one hand because of recovery from COVID-19, the pandemic, and, uh, you know, demand coming back and, and, and production is starting to come back, but not quite as strongly uh, with a lot of associated gas production tied to oil. So anyway, so, you know, for now, we're seeing signs of a tight market, but not alarmingly so. Uh, but it, it'll only take an extreme cold snap over an extended period of time for us to start um, really seeing gas prices surge and see power markets affected. And is that gas prices, is that the really what's going to be, you mentioned that the cold winter but or potentially cold winter, but, but is gas prices what's really going to be terminating a lot of the resilience of winter power? What about coal or renewables? What about some of these other contributors? Yeah, so gas sets power prices, you know, quite often in most U.S. power markets. So really, you know, with coal retirements over the past couple of years, um, there's less coal capacity around than there used to be. So really, you know, gas very likely will often be the marginal fuel. Um, it is already, and it will be uh, in a cold snap as well. So 
I keep saying cold snap because under normal weather, if we, if we see normal weather like we, you know, the average of the past 10 years, we think we'll get by without price shocks. But if we see a cold snap, then inventories will get stressed and then, you know, gas, gas buyers will look to snap up marginal supplies and drive prices up. And so, you know, that could, that heavily will feed into high power prices. Uh, but I guess the extent to which power generated owners are impacted or us, us customers who buy electricity and buy gas, you know, will come down to, you know, to what extent our utilities or to what extent power plant owners have hedged uh, their gas price exposure this winter. So if things stay mild or normal, we should be okay. But uh, if we see a cold snap like we did this past February, then uh, buckle up because we could see prices go up uh, until the weather subsides. And does that put more of the risk on those traditionally colder states or or, um, or perhaps that those states going into it with, with more uh, where, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here in Texas and obviously February was a disaster for us. Um, should, should we look for, are there any parts of the country that are heading into this with a little bit more confidence or a little bit more nerves? nerves? Yeah, I mean, uh, fortunately, unfortunately, gas gas markets and, and power markets are pretty well connected. So even, you know, Texas was sort of the epicenter of the gas price spikes this past February, but you saw, you know, the overall gas market being impacted and utilities far away being impacted. I mean, those utilities impacted were still in, still in cold weather areas and they had plenty of cold too. But yeah, because of the broad interconnectedness of the North America gas market and the power markets to a similar extent, you know, likely to see those high prices reverberate into the broader U.S. market. But of course, maybe be most acute in the location where it's coldest and where, you know, gas supply or power supply is directly disrupted. All right. Well, let's uh, I'd like to bring Zijo in, in, into this uh, as well. So, so some of the other headlines that we're seeing in addition to, to these energy focused ones are around U.S. policy, but both related to an infrastructure bill. You, you've got a big uh, that the U.N. General Assembly just finished its climate focused or, or meeting with climate focused discussion in New York, and we're preparing for COP26 here in about a month. Zijo, as, as we're looking at these real kind of short term factors that are influencing um, consumer awareness about energy, I'll call it that. How should we start thinking about the, the medium term, particularly in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are asking, you know, is, is energy transition or renewables responsible for all these outages, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so far, our conclusion is that it seems to be mostly a gas market issue and a coal market issue uh, globally, really in all of these markets where we're seeing very tight fuel supply. You know, renewables are actually contributing to a lot of the supply stack if we think about power. And it's probably not big enough to have that much big of a swing yet. But yes, you know, here in the U.S., in Washington, it's uh, the infrastructure bill is still uh, under discussion. And it's really critical to achieving the Biden climate goals that he announced immediately after he took the president's this year, uh, which is about 50 percent reduction by 2030, so nine years from now, and then a 2050 net zero target. Right? These are the two things that's been made very public, and the infrastructure bill uh, is critical to supporting all of that. So we're watching this very closely to see if that actually results in something that can be implemented or executed uh, to the effect that it would have some impact on the medium term and the long term carbon reduction 
With some of these uh, short-term issues that we just talked about with Wade, I mean, does a cold winter make policy that much more difficult um, in terms of voters and some of the energy prices, or is there a lot of momentum underway that the medium term is kind of baked in and a move to call it lower carbon power situation? That's a very good question. That you know, there's always the the obstacle of, uh, of you know a member of Congress throwing a, a snowball down the aisle, right? We have <laughs> some snow in Washington, and uh, and then we we don't have to develop renewables. But you know, to the twenty thirty goals, very actually very ambitious, and some people may say it's already baked in. But there are stuff that we could do uh, if we look at history. The past uh, fifteen years or so, the U.S. reduced its carbon emissions by about fourteen percent. That's about 500 million tons of CO2 equivalent. Mm-hmm. Now, Biden goal, if we're to get to the Biden goal of 50% reduction from 2005 levels, we have to reduce the uh, emissions by another 2.7 uh, billion tons. So right now, the total emissions are about just north of 6 billion tons, and uh, it will have to go down to roughly 3.4, 3.3 billion tons. And so essentially what they're asking is, you know, we're reduced by 500 million tons in 15 years, and we have to go with 2.7 billion tons in uh, another 10 years. So it's <laughs> almost 10 times the speed, uh, the pace of transition in the coming decade. So it's not easy. It would take a lot of efforts across the economy just to get that done. But probably a lot of it will have to be done in the power sector as it has mm-hmm. been in the past 15 years. And looking back, though, that kind of brings us back to natural gas, right? That the, 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 the easy the, the, the easy work, I think, was done by natural gas displacing coal and ultimately was deflationary to the customer, correct? That's right. It was sort of the, the low-hanging fruits, right? So you got a cheaper fuel that came about because of the shale revolution and uh, natural gas just you know naturally displaced coal. So it was kind of an easy task to be accomplished. There's still some room for that. We still have coal retirements coming up in the U.S., so there's still some of that, but that's definitely not enough to get us to those targets. And uh, during the Trump years, you know, many people were looking to the states, municipalities, and companies to have their own goals. Um, and we actually do have about uh, 14 states that have 2030 targets that are in line with the federal targets, and then there's about seven or eight that have more moderate targets. But those are, you know, if we added all those together, they're just far from being enough to get to the 50% reduction under the Biden goals. So the federal government will have to do a lot more if we were to get to the 2030 goal and definitely by, you know, the 2050 net zero goals. Yeah, I think, you know, just to elaborate more, I mean, if, if over the next nine years, if we just wiped out all the carbon emissions from power, if we could just, you know, replace all the carbon emitting fuels with something that's zero carbon, we'd still miss Biden's 50% by 2030 goal. So it needs to be a, a multiple sector decarbonization strategy where, you know, we're moving away from coal to natural gas and renewables and really renewables need to start pushing down on the natural gas volumes consumed in power to lower power sector emissions. And we need to do stuff in transportation. We need to lower carbon emissions from all the vehicles, or we need to look at, you know, buildings and how we get heat. And so really it's a, mm-hmm. uh, and all of the above problem or solution uh, is necessary to address the CO2 problem. 
Well, if we're thinking, I, I guess, just specifically about power for, for the moment, Wade, that, that if, if we look at those, um, you know, we, we've talked about kind of government policy driving a lot of this. I think there's also a huge need for, for investment um, in, in terms of if things come offline, something else is going to have to come online to, to, to meet that power needs. Uh, I guess first in the near term, Wade, when we're looking at coal retirements or, or gas fire generation, where do we see opportunity in, in different parts of the country in, in the near term to, I suppose, reduce carbon within the power? What, what is baked in on a geographic basis? Yes, I mean, um, you know, there's two elements I think that you brought up. One is, you know, reducing carbon, which ultimately needs, means you need to burn less fossil fuel, aka natural gas, and switch to some other energy source. But there's also the reliability element that you got to, which is a little different, in that you can use a lot of the existing or use almost all the existing power plants to maintain reliability. But as long as you're burning less fuel in them over the year uh, and replacing, you know, that fuel use with, say, solar or wind, uh, you are reducing emissions. And that's sort of, they're, they're two separate things. I think that gets lost in the conversation right now, unappreciated. And I think what's sort of making this even more painful for everyone around the world is we see, you know, climate shocks just stressing our current systems and really um, upending the way we've historically thought about managing risk and, and power and energy and making sure we have, you know, planning around having reliable power supply. So you have these climate shocks that are either hitting demand really hard and spiking demand way more, way more so than, you know, we would have anticipated or expected, or they're shocking the availability of some critical supply source that then keeps, you know, the capacity to steal on the ground from getting access to, say, the natural gas that is there, but just can't be delivered because, you know, compressors froze or something broke uh, mm -hmm. on a wellhead and can't be delivered. Uh, so I guess the point being, getting back to your point, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, opportunity across the U.S. to continue to build renewables. You know, there's still tax credits available. Renewables are still, even you know, with and even without the tax credits, renewables are a very cheap source of energy and in a lot of markets on par with the cost of burning gas. Um, and so one can can uh, add renewables, address the CO2 emissions. And then, you know, in the Eastern markets, Eastern interconnections, so like east of the Rocky Mountains, there's generally surplus capacity. So there, there's an opportunity to, you know, maybe retire um, some thermal capacity that's no longer needed, that's old, can't really ramp around or, or change its output around how the solar and wind fluctuates. So there's an opportunity there to retire some capacity and still have a reliable power system. Well, if you look at the West, a lot of markets either right now are really tight. And then if you add in, you know, climate risk, maybe maybe short, uh, maybe not as resilient as expected because of climate risks. Um, and so there, there it's, there's a need for more capacity, more steel. Batteries can play a role, but, mm -hmm. you know, we also think uh, even building new gas capacity, gas capacity, and uh, not running it very often, that can address reliability while allowing CO2 emissions to go down. So gas is a backup. Yeah, maybe adding some other technology opportunities. We, you know, there's a lot of optimism, for example, in the East Coast for offshore wind, mm -hmm. right? That's really gotten a lot of attention. The federal government is uh, coordinating a lot of those efforts with uh, states like New York um, and New Jersey to uh, really make the East Coast the champion for offshore wind. Um, that's an area that we, we've seen grow quite a bit. 
And then uh, as Wade mentioned, you know, the battery storage set or anything that could provide flexibility to the power system. Because as you have more and more renewables, you need to have that flexible capacity that are increasingly valuable for power dispatch. So anything that could give you that uh, would be a good piece of investment probably going forward. Um, and then the last bit, it's probably the hardest bit for uh, investment is transmission. That thing is critical for the long-term um, net zero goals. If we did not have uh, much more transmission capacity, especially across state lines to really bring the renewables to demand centers and have sort of seasonal flexibility from the transmission, then it will be very hard to get to net zero. And uh, of course, the Biden administration has established a new coordination team in the DOE to specifically help you know, states and uh, utilities to manage that permitting process. Uh, we'll see how smoothly it goes. It's, it's been one of the big roadblocks in the past. So, and I'm going to use this as a segue to, to, to talk a little bit more about the, the, the study that you guys are leading, um, which is called New Configurations, America's Gas and Power and Net Zero, which, um, Zizio, some of what you were just saying, you know, kicked off, you know, at least curiosities for, for me in that. So, uh, I guess just briefly to kind of introduce the, the, the work, this is a study that you guys have just, uh, just started on within the past, what, two or three weeks in terms of working with customers? and we'll continue to roll out coverage through February of next year, is that right? That's right. So we launched, the, we announced the study in July, and we have a good number of uh, participants now, and we will have four workshops from this point on. We did have our takeoff session just uh, last week, and there was a great discussion around some of the, I would say, the thorniest issues in the net zero process. You know, one thing we we try not to do is to just do another pathway study, right? Everybody's done the pathway study, the, the IEA, the USDIA, you know, various universities, everybody has a 2050, 2060 outlook. What we're trying to do here is really to tackle some of the most difficult or thorniest issues in getting to some of these 2050, 2060 goals. And uh, issues that we see repeatedly come up in a lot of these pathway studies, but mm -hmm. we're never really address to uh, satisfaction. What are some of those thorny issues? Can, can you m mention just a few of them? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about a couple and then uh, Wade can probably uh, uh, mention the rest. So for example, there's, you know, depending on your choice of technology, right? There could be uh, different technology mixes to get to net zero. For example, uh, we could use renewables plus battery. So what's the cost of doing that? Uh, compared to, let's say, if we used a fossil plant like gas-fired power with CCS, with carbon capture, mm -hmm. what's the cost of that? Or if we are pursuing more of a gaseous fuel future with more hydrogen or renewable gas, so instead of electrification, we, 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 we still use a gaseous fuel like hydrogen. And what's the cost of that? So really looking at the different cost structure and then provide some outlooks on how they would compare. So that's that's a big element that we hope to do this on a regional basis, not sort of a U.S. national average because, uh, you know, there are a lot of regional variations on that. Wade, you want to add the others? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of the interest is around the practicalities, right? You can uh, you can come up with all various pathways, but then 
you know, if you're running a business today or you own uh, power generation assets or gas assets or, or you name it, if you're participating in the energy economy or you're investing in the energy economy, sort of left with, okay, well, so what? How do I start pursuing these pathways? You know, how am I going to be successful doing so? And so, you know, like, like Shija mentioned, you know, looking at different regions. So like one practical element that kind of lacks from some some pathway studies out, out there is sort of the lack of acknowledgement of the interconnectedness of the power and gas systems across the U.S. So, you know, there are pathway studies for a given state or a given region, but uh, every region has its own energy system made up of, you know, its own power plant resources and gas resources. And in the future, every region is going to have their own uh, sort of unique mix of optimal renewables that will have their own uh, sort of unique shortcomings that then have implications for, you know, what a resilient system looks like. And so, um, and then there's also a possibility of regions trading with each other and, you know, identifying new infrastructure to interconnect this net zero economy of the future uh, in order to bring up efficiencies and, um, and make sure it's reliable. And I guess another area of practicality is, you know, looking at the existing infrastructure we have today and thinking in practical terms, well, how can it be repurposed or reused or fit into this uh, low net zero carbon future? So, you know, gas generation capacity, what's um, sort of emerging as the target for retirement or, or a desire from some, you know, constituents or, or communities out there to sort of wipe the slate of gas power plants today and kind of replace it with solar, wind and batteries. And so, you know, we think, you know, like I said before, we think gas capacity is absolutely crucial to a resilient, reliable power system today. And it and there is a bridge there. And that gas capacity could even quite possibly turn into, you know, a zero carbon gas capacity in the future as we replace natural gas with uh, zero, zero carbon fuels. And so it's really thinking through that, you know, that practical technology roadmap in a given market and really hopefully give folks some actionable insight that they can go out and deploy and really start pursuing uh, the net zero future instead of just looking at a pathway on a piece of paper. So I want to come back to uh, some of the transmission things that Zizio mentioned uh, a second ago. But before I do, just down the street from me, you know, a neighbor was putting on solar panels on his house and, and I've got more and more friends with battery backups in their house. And we, or Wade, you mentioned the uh, resilience, I'll call it concerns, just on the general kind of grid. As we're thinking longer term and about new configurations, is the regional approach becoming more localized where we start to see more and more individual consumers, in a sense, opt out of traditional power transmission and consumption? I think, you know, uh, from the work we've done, I think um, to completely opt out, completely disconnect, unplug will, would be quite challenging to do in a practical sort of economic sense. So I would imagine your neighbor is also not, you know, severing his uh, power line coming into his home <laughs> from a telephone pole, right? He's still going to hopefully uh, enjoy enjoy that grid power too. So, I mean, you know, in the future, like today, you know, um, there's scale savings from in the power industry, you know, large power plants, large power systems. But in a zero carbon future, it's not just about, you know, large, I mean, Another benefit of, of regional power systems in a, in a net zero future is just the diversity of renewable resources and, you know, wind in, in West Texas being balanced by wind in South Texas, um, you know, near the Gulf Coast, they deliver at different times of the year or different levels at different times of the year, deliver at different hours. 
and both of them together provide you know more overall value to the people of texas than one does by itself and so you can kind of get a sense of you know if you can tap a diverse pool of renewable resources over a wide footprint you can get a lot of the way to uh, meeting your energy needs with renewables and that's something you miss out on if you just uh, put solar panels on your rooftop but but you know to, to be fair i mean one of the biggest challenges we see, which we're which we're exploring um, in a workshop on its own, is just how do you deliver sustainable energy from where it's produced to where it's consumed? Mm -hmm. And that delivery challenge is is hard. You know, it's not trivial. And especially, you know, if we're talking about electric grids, especially if we're talking about electrifying all the vehicles on a road and then electrifying a lot of heating, that's going to add a lot of electricity demand that could be met by building more wires, putting more wires in, and you know, building more infrastructure. But that's difficult to do in developed areas, and so you know, then maybe maybe there's an opportunity for more neighborhood or localized, you know, energy production and distribution, or even thinking about different ways to deliver sustainable electricity. So instead of by wire, maybe it's by pipeline, as uh, green hydrogen or ammonia or synthetic methane or maybe it's delivering biofuels. So that delivery angle, I think, will be one of the major challenges that, again, maybe is lacking from pathway studies that kind of focus on supply and demand and sort of miss the middle piece mm -hmm. uh, sometimes. And so, and so, yeah, so that's how distributed generation come in and why we think that middle piece is absolutely crucial if we're talking about, you know, the practical net zero future. I actually just signed my rooftop solar contract last week after a lot of, you know, research and studying and uh, realize it's actually a really good deal. And uh, I will connect to the grid, continue to connect to the grid, won't have a battery, and we'll see how it goes. The economics are certainly attractive enough right now. Why won't you have a battery? It just adds a lot more to the, to the CapEx when you do the math. Mm -hmm. right? So there's, a, there's sort of a, an optimization in your costs and the returns. And uh, given the current net metering rules, it's, uh, it makes more sense just to uh, you know, when you don't have power, you just take from the grid and you can sell any access during the day to the grid. And uh, it's, it's a pretty it's a pretty nice arrangement. We'll probably have some of this decentralized decentralized the generation, but, you know, being completely off grid, you know, what we usually call uh, grid defections. That's, you know, that's still pretty hard. Even big industries, right? They have their huge captive power stations. They still want to have some connectivity to the grid just in case. So when we're thinking about practicalities, it's come up uh, several times in this conversation. And I remember years ago, Boone Pickens had put all those windmills up in North Texas um, and was trying to get, and I don't remember if it ever happened or not, but he was trying to get government support to build transmission out of North Texas or West Texas right there on, I think, the Lubbock area. And he never got it. He never got the policy support as best I can remember. Is that right? I think so. But uh, I'll defer to you as the native, as the local Texan. <laughs> <laughs> well, listeners can, can e e email us if we're wrong, but, but I'm going to go with he, he never got it. Um, and and that, that transmission is particularly difficult with, with NIMBY concerns, not in my backyard concerns. Uh, I suppose that power lines are, are better received perhaps than gas pipelines or oil pipelines. Zizhou, how, how are we approaching the, the transmission? That that seems to be one of those big middle issues. And unless people went totally localized and put solar and battery on their own home or in their own neighborhood, that, that getting new forms of power from place A to place B is, is going to be the big 
one of those big thorny issues, so to speak. That's right. And, and, that, and a lot of the issues are really permitting uh, state regulations versus federal, getting the FERC involved. In some cases, you could have a, you know, uh, a neighborhood housing association, right? They, they might be object to certain things, they throw a lawsuit, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so those things become a, you know, really a, a thorny policy issue. What we try to do here is to almost do a little bit of backing out how much is needed. So if we were to get to net zero by 2050, what are the kinds of transmission requirements um, in the country and uh, roughly where? And then, you know, we can say, okay, in order to have that, when does construction need to start and when do we need to have those permitted? And is that possible right now, right? So Biden is saying that by 2035, we want to have a net zero power system, right? So is this even possible? What kinds of federal policy coordination do we need? Uh, Wade, I'm sure you have something to add as well on the transmission side. Yeah, I think, you know, one one of the other practical areas we'll look at around transmission too is, you know, addressing the common concern out there, which is, well, what if you can't build it? What if... Mm -hmm policy doesn't change and then well what are the other options how much does it cost so we'll look at um you know the 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 alternative that jumps to mind you know is looking at uh, like i said before delivering it by pipe and then you're talking about transforming electrical energy renewable electrical energy into uh, a fuel which uh, probably is going to be expensive maybe more expensive than delivering it by wire so transforming it into say green hydrogen or ammonia and being able to deliver by pipe or some other method to um, to some to get past the constraint to get around like where the transmission wire is at. So maybe you have to deliver it to a power plant uh, in the LA basin, for example. So that's one area that's that's what we call transmission constrained in the region, which just means that uh, to meet all the electrical demand uh, in the area from all the houses and businesses and industry, there has to be local power plants because there it's there aren't enough wires to bring it into that area. And so um, now if you electrify everything in some constrained area like that, now the demand has gone up. And if you can't build wires, then uh, then you don't have a lot of other options other than a pipe or, or bringing in ammonia from some other method and then delivering it to the mm-hmm. local power plants on the other side of it. So, you know, those are logistics that um, – probably don't come up if you have an optimized decarbonization pathway. But if you start layering in uh, sort of contingencies or thinking about practicalities around, you know, policy or nimbyism, then you'd want to at least consider um, other options and understand sort of uh, at a ballpark level, you know, how much more expensive um, that that outcome would be. So, you know, maybe just to wrap up here, um, you know, as we're thinking about the the current headlines, both around energy crises or challenges and around some of the policy challenges as well, specifically for the for the U.S., um, what are you all looking at in the very near term, aside from a potentially cold winter, to, to help inform the longer term views within this new configurations story? And, and, and I'll ask uh, Wade first and, and Zisha, you can have time to, to think. Yeah, so I guess one thing we're watching is, um, you know, do these um, announcements from President Biden, the, the, the 50% reduction goal by 2030 and the net zero power system goal by 2035, I mean, does that does that turn into more stringent or concrete policy? So, you know, we're watching the, um, 
budget process going on on the hill now and uh the reconciliation matters and um you know we've done some analysis and thinking around you know what what a clean energy sort of incentive program or plan would look like um in that reconciliation con context and uh and sort of what it would take to sort of um accelerate renewable deployment so i think you know from uh from a policy standpoint and sort of near-term standpoint, um, I think we'll be watching, you know, these goals and if these goals turn into stringent mandates and be watching for mechanisms and that will inform uh, our outlook and also inform sort of in a practical sense what's emerging as the likely path forward to get to net zero. Zizou? And yeah, I would say, you know, we, we really have to manage the reliability of our power system really carefully in the coming years, not just coming winter, you know, because there's always the political risk of uh, you run a blackout or some kind of mm -hmm. supply crisis, and uh, you know somebody comes up and blames uh, renewables for it. Right? Even in Texas in February, we heard some of that voices, but it's it's pretty clear now that it's it's more of a winterization issue and a coordination issue in the gas and power systems. Um, but that risk. Uh, is there? We're, we're hearing voices in Europe and in China about the uh, wind power output uh, and how that could have contributed to uh, to the power crisis in those regions. So I would say, you know, really, really um, keeping a, an eye on reliability um, as we move through this. And uh, aside from that, I, you know, I'm kind of selfishly hoping for a cold winter here in DC. Because <laughs> we, you know, we had warm winters and. It's uh, the city is overrun with rats because they. <laughs> so I'm hoping for a for a cold winter so that we can get rid of some rats for next year. <laughs> All the rats are going to be coming into your solar powered house for uh for, for warmth and uh warm warm food. <laughs> so be careful what you wish for. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, well, that seems like a good enough place to stop. So so thank you guys both for. Uh, for joining me today and, and uh, I look forward to, to seeing the study and uh, uh, the, the workshops as we get through them and uh, I suppose hopefully a cold winter so that we can do something about the rats in DC. That's right and remember the title of the study is New Configurations so look it up. Yep, thanks. To read additional insights from our team of experts visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.